Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, it's our traditional summer reading episode. That's right. This yeah. is uh, kind of kind of beach reading time. Uh, well, you guys go to the beach. I'm not really a beach person. <laughs> Wait, but, what? Uh, I go to the beach? Well, Since I don't when know. Do I go to the I beach? I know Robert well, goes I go to the, the beach. beach yeah. So. Robert <laughs> goes to the beach. Uh, I like to go to radioactive beaches. <laughs> <laughs> and read your books, right? Right. Yeah. So this is kind of, uh, you know, an annual tradition here at Stuff to blow your mind where we take a break from the research and we talk about what we've just been reading casually that we recommend our listeners go and read for the summer. Yeah, I mean, this is the time, to your point, people are going out on vacation. People like to bring – I like to bring a book with me on vacation, if I'm whether I'm going to the, the beach or not. And uh, it's also the time when we have a lot – we just putting together the podcast – People are in and out. People are going on vacation, so it's yeah. nice to have something we can we can put together uh, without a whole lot of uh, extra research involved. Uh, one thing I've discovered is that uh, if you're going on vacation, not to the beach, but say to your in-laws' house, uh-huh. it's also great to bring a book there because yes. you can sneak away. And, and I say that as somebody who loves my in-laws. I don't have in-law problems. <laughs> I, uh, they they are the greatest people in the world. But you're in somebody else's house every now and then. You want to sneak off yeah. to another room and just read you need for a to while. Decompress. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I have two thoughts on this as well. For starters, we have so many distractions built into our regular routine that if you just break your routine a little bit, even by just going on a, a small family trip or going to visit in-laws, you're going to be able to break free from the shackles of of, of your life a little bit and maybe read a bit more. So yeah. that's nice. And then in general, there's this rule of life. Always bring something to read because if you bring something to read, you will not have time for it. But if you, if you don't bring a book, then you will find yourself sitting in a, in a waiting room somewhere yep. uh, with nothing to occupy yourself but, you know, staring at your fingernails and wishing you had your clippers on you. Or you'll be looking at junk on your phone and wishing yeah. you hadn't. I'm one of those people who like overly prepares in that respect. Like I've always got something to read and I've also always got like notebooks to write in to the point now where I've got like an, a, a, an absurd amount of notebooks in my everyday bag. Like, cause I got a field note subscription. This isn't an advertisement for them, but I got a field note subscription and now I have like six field notes for like all different things <laughs> that are in my backpack at all times. Plus, I'm reading constantly. Well, you, until pre, until very recently, uh, you, you couldn't really have the Kindle out uh, on the right. plane yeah. uh, while you're you know doing takeoff and landing. So I would always make sure, okay, do I have a physical book for that portion of the flight, and then I can bust out the Kindle for the rest. That's of the smart. Yeah, yeah. You don't have a Kindle yet, right? You're still reading everything physical. Uh, I read uh, physical books and on my phone. Oh, okay. Though I, so this is funny. The majority of the books that I'm going to recommend today I read on my phone even though I still like paper books much better. Yeah? How is that on your eyes though? Eh, I mean it's not great. It it was one of those where I just wanted to start reading a book. I yeah. didn't want to go out and buy it somewhere, wait for it to arrive. So mm-hmm. I just got the book and started reading or uh, or started listening to an audio book. I mean I do both of those. So yeah. I, I consume books digitally a lot even though I much in – Joy paper books. Yeah. I enjoy them much more. Yeah. Yeah. It was, boy, getting a, a, a Kindle. This is, again, not an advertisement. Like any whatever e-reader that doesn't like flashlight directly into your mm-hmm. eyeballs. Man, it was a revelation for me. Like I, my reading increased exponentially. Uh, when I, when I got that, because I just, I don't know, there was something about it. Like it, it got me really back into reading again. 
Yeah, I've I've also really enjoyed uh, the various like free ebooks uh, offerings that are out there. Like one that comes to mind is um, uh, Tor Books. Oh yeah, uh, T O R. You and I have talked about this. Yeah, yeah, they'll do a. I think they're still doing this um, a, a book of the month club where they'll just put out an ebook and you can they'll just say here here's the file, download it, get it on your device, however you get it on your device, and uh, and you're good to go. One of those, uh, which is like a novelette that I read recently, it wasn't free. It was ninety nine cents, so it really broke the bank. But uh, I, not on my list here, but I recommend it. Kelly Robeson, she's this up-and-coming kind of sci-fi horror fantasy writer, and she wrote this uh, story called, I think it's A Human Stain, and it is, wow, really good. Yeah. But I'm jumping ahead. I'm like, I'm already recommending stuff that isn't <laughs> on paper in front of me right here. Well, where should we start, gentlemen? Should we start with fiction or nonfiction? Because we're going to roll through some fictional selections, some nonfictional selections, and uh, Christian and I are going to bust out at, at least a couple of comics. I think you have more than one. I'd have one comic selection. I surprisingly only have one comic, okay. but knowing me, I'll end up talking about <laughs> ten other comics by the end of this episode. Yeah. Uh, why don't we start with the fiction? All right. And I think one of you guys should go first because my fiction is a little odd. It's not like one thing. Joe, uh, why don't you kick it off then? All right. Well, I've got a couple of fiction picks this year. One is a book that is more recent. I mean, actually, I guess it's about 10 years ago now, but uh, more recent. Another one is a classic that I just discovered for the first time this year. So I'll start with the more recent one, and that is going to be Blind Sight by Peter Watts, which was published by Tor Books in 2006. Man, we're just giving Tor all the love today. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to try not to interrupt you too much, Joe. Uh, but I am currently reading this book oh. and am enjoying it quite a lot. So I, I'll, I may uh, interject my opinions as well here and there. Well, y'all tap me on the shoulder if I'm just gushing too <laughs> too effusively about this book. I love this book. I, I picked up Blindsight after our interview with R. Scott Baker because in his paper on alien philosophy, R. Scott Baker mentioned – that there were really only two books he could think of that really achieved the imagination of a truly non-anthropomorphic alien mind. And one of the two books he named was Blindsight. Okay. I'd never heard of it before. I'd never read anything by Peter Watts. But I was like, well, I'm looking for a new sci-fi horror kind of book right now. I'll check that out. I ordered it. And, oh, man, it is so great. <laughs> uh, it's It's a great example of the themes we talk about on the show all the time. So I think it's like – dead center bullseye stuff to blow your mind fan kind of book. But also it's a, it's a great example of, um, this common sci-fi type story, the first contact story. I, I don't want to say too much about the story, though I will talk about some elements from the setting of the novel, uh, because the story, I think you should just experience the surprises of the plot on your own. But, uh, I, I will say a bit about the themes and the setting. So Peter Watts is a Canadian marine biologist turned science fiction author, and his science background, I would say, really, really comes through in the novel because it's a novel about scientific hypotheses. Characters are scientists and are trying to solve scientific problems in the in the plot of the story, and it also deals with these fascinating questions about the biological origins of consciousness. I would say it's my favorite kind of science fiction novel because I want to picture there are like four squares in a grid. And I would call this uh, in the the square that I would call wild hard. So you could define you could divide science fiction into hard and soft, where hard sci-fi incorporates scientific themes and it tries to stay true to real physics and biology. And then you've got soft sci-fi that has 
you know, unexplained magical elements. And that's fine, but that's its own thing. Uh, but then I, I'd separate it also into dry versus wild. Dry sci-fi deals with the standard themes of drama and fiction, familiar stuff, interpersonal relationships and all that. Wild sci-fi deals with unpredictable, bizarre creatures and scenarios. And so this, this is in the corner of both hard and wild. It's absolutely bonkers, but at the same time, it's extremely scientifically conscientious and concerned with scientific accuracy and plausibility. So. Well, this is, w- I think. Would you agree, Robert? I would agree. And I think at this point, you need to mention, uh, the, the plot element and one particular character that initially hooked me on it. Uh, like, I think it was probably the first thing you told me about it. Yeah. I would say my first thing to sell a stuff to blow your mind fan about this book is that it's a space adventure, hard sci-fi first contact book that has vampires in it. <laughs> All right, and I'm on board. So it's Life Force? It, no, I no. Mean, uh, no, it's not quite Life Force. So Life Force is definitely not hard sci-fi. Right, so <laughs> you're out there going like, wait a minute, vampires, okay. Yeah. I thought you said this was hard sci-fi. I would say it is. There's no fantasy. There's no supernatural elements. Watts does an amazingly good job of making vampires biologically plausible. And what he does okay. is he envisions them as an extinct branch of hominids that went extinct in the Pleistocene epoch, uh, and they're cousins of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, but they've got all these interesting inherited glitches and features in their body. For one thing, they are obligate cannibals. Like, they have to consume other hominids because they need a necessary protein that's generated in hominid bodies, and they can't generate it themselves. So they've got to eat other hominids to survive. Mm-hmm. This is why they're, you know, feeding on us. Mm-hmm. Of course, this... No, they eat. They're not drinking blood. They literally are eating people. No, I think it's more like they would just eat people. They might drink Mm -hmm. your blood, too, but they want to eat your flesh. This is sort of the the genesis of all vampire myths, though. Yeah. Gotcha. So how does this hold up in comparison? I'm looking to Robert here because we did an episode on Guillermo del Toro's The Strain, which is also very heavily scientifically influenced vampire creation. I would say that the major difference here is that in, in The Strain, they put a lot of effort into imagining a very monstrous yeah. um, vampire species that is essentially parasitic in, in its origin. And in Blindsight, Peter Watts puts a tremendous amount of effort into creating – it's still monstrous in a way. It's still inhuman, but it's a very, very it, human vampire in – in its consciousness? Well, that that's where it gets really interesting because yeah. he spends so much time just uh, talking about how would a creature like this think? Yeah. Right. How would it uh, – one of the examples that comes up uh, is is it's uh, – it, the vampire character doesn't speak much or when it does speak, right. it's, he speaks very briefly and it makes a comparison to uh, to orcas. Yeah. The two uh, – like know, a transient predator. Yes, transient predator and how the, you know, the, the ones that prey upon uh, mammals speak less and are, are therefore you know creating less noise that would scare off potential prey. Hmm. So even though this vampire is a member of the crew, it's still behaving and thinking like an evolved predator. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and it's so great. I mean, and they, so they respond to it the same way you would respond in the presence of a predator. Like they feel the predatory gaze as if there's like a lion sitting across the table from them talking to gotcha. them. Okay. Um, and it's all, it's got, there's so many other little features he comes up with that are just fascinating. Like, uh, uh, they have to go into these undead hibernation periods because, of course, if you're just eating humans all the time, you run out of food. So right. they have to slow down their metabolism. Another thing we've covered yeah. on the show before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, so they're harmed by looking at crosses. How does he make that scientifically plausible sure. where he ge- he gives them this inherited neurological glitch because – 
perpendicular intersecting right angles almost never occur in nature. Okay. And they've got this problem where when they look at one, they go into seizures. And, oh, yeah. that's clever. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of that's essentially one of the main reasons they went extinct. Right. Is not because humans were able to really outsmart them because they are brilliant. They're right. able the rise of Christianity. Uh, well, just the rise of human structures and creation. Oh, I you see. Yeah, you okay. can't go into a human city and oh, eat so them they if they can't... have all these right angles. So if they, okay, I see. So even if they're just like looking at a house that's built with right angles, they start having these seizures. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But um, then they they also like another detail he brings up is um, how they can they can hold two separate worldviews in their mind at the same time. Yeah, they're like a they're like a multi core parallel processor, and they can sort of divide their attention between solving multiple problems at the same time. They've got a divisible internal brain. The, this is not the example Watts used, but I'm going to tweak it. You know, uh, the what is it? The the rabbit. What is the optical illusion? Sometimes it looks like a rabbit. The rabbit, the duck. The rabbit, the duck. Yeah. The vampires can look at the rabbit, the duck, and they see a rabbit and the duck at the same time. Is oh. it the Necker cube? Yes, that's the specific yeah. example. You so use. you you know about this, Christian, right? No. Well, it's a it's a three dimensional illustration of a cube, like the wire cube, uh-huh. and your mind, while you're looking at it, will switch back and forth from seeing it as a cube oriented in one direction to a cube oriented oh, in the other direction. Yeah, I do know what you're talking about. I just didn't know that's what it was called. Okay. So a human looks at that. And your mind is naturally switching you back and forth. You see it one way, then you see it the other way. The vampires in this novel can see both cubes at once. Huh. Okay. Uh, one more thing I wanted That's to say terrifying. about it. That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. These sound like apex predators. Totally. I, I'd say this novel yeah, has uh, – Okay. It has really strong horror elements and they're of a very interesting kind because – I would say it's a cousin to the kind of cosmic horror you'd see in something like Lovecraft and related works where there's this idea that there are vast, powerful forces at work in the universe and you're just a speck and you have no reason to think that these vast, powerful forces are sympathetic to you at all. Yeah, cosmic horror. Yeah, and so in Lovecraft, these are like alien god beings, you yeah. know, these pantheons and things like that. In Blindsight, I'd say the same thematic role is played by the laws of biological evolution. Like the novel actually leverages real facts about biology and extending Mm -hmm. them into thinking about space to fill the role of cosmic dread brought on by the elder gods in Lovecraft. Oh, that sounds very nice. Yeah, I need to check this book out. Yeah, there. This is one of those books I'm reading it in in ebook format, and uh, I keep making notes. Uh, in, in my device as I see that, see it tie into various topics we've covered. Like there's a scene where there are a number of scenes in the book where characters are, are hit with very strong magnetic fields and it's mm-hmm. causing hallucinations and also, um, it's like a god helmet. Yeah, it's like cap. a god helmet. There, one of the characters sees the creator god and goes berserk over it. Another character essentially, um, um, um ends up having the Cotard's delusion, believing that she does uh, not exist anymore. Yeah. Wow. It's, it, it, I would say that I would, that in the, the portion I've read of it, the, the the cognitive stuff, like all the main characters in it, are so cognitively transhuman, so delightfully cognitively transhuman. Yeah. Um, uh, but but I, I don't want to steal too much of your thunder here. Well, no, I just I, I think I'm I'm about ready to move on, but I just want to say I I think we haven't even touched on half of the amazingly fascinating ideas in this book. So it's just jammed with with stuff to contemplate. Really cool interesting ideas. If you're into science, if you're into 
big questions and cosmic mysteries of existence. This is an excellent book. I think you'd really enjoy. And there's not there is not a quote unquote normal character in the book. Like no. every character is has some sort of bizarre cognitive ability or transformation. Like there's a character with multiple personalities intentionally created in her head. So that she has a linguistics oh, yeah. team, like in her. School. Oh, right. So the very eclipse phase, where so they've got like the ability to sort of sleeve multiple identities into a body. Oh, sort, sort of. One, yeah. one character does. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Another, actually, maybe more than one, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Another character has uh, the main character has lost lost half his brain to a what a, an infection. Uh, yeah, a radical hemispherectomy. Yeah. He, he had uh, he suffered from seizures when he was a child. And they were so bad that they did this procedure where they remove one hemisphere of the brain. Mm-hmm. And that does stop the seizures, but it also has lots of side effects. Yeah. So it's, it's like that level of, uh, of creativity in this book that, uh, that I think is just really, really amazing. I thought one more fact I want to say, and then we can move on. Uh, this book also does something that I've never seen done before. Maybe somebody else does it, but I think it's great. You always hear the singularitarians being so excited about uploading our consciousness oh, yes. into computers. Mm-hmm. And that's always interpreted as, and that's the end. That's yeah. the end of history. We just upload our consciousness into computers. Right. And then it's just heavenly bliss in a virtual environment for all time. And we don't need to worry about anything else. This book incorporates that as a historical event. People start being able to upload their minds into virtual heavens and then says, actually, that's not the end of history. That just happens at some point and things continue going on. What would be the consequences of that? Right. And, yeah. uh, and I, I love it. The way he deals with it is really interesting. And oh, yeah. Like there are elements of, yes, we've had, we're post singularity, but we, we have difficulty communicating with the machines and understanding yeah. each other. You have to have individuals whose whole role is to sort of serve as an arbitrator between these two factions. It, it is, he is, he's sort of, Depicting post singularity, but it's not a, he's not sanguine about the singularity and its effects on our lives. It's more kind of like, here's just one more radically weird complication in human experience. Yeah. And I seem to recall too that like there are a few areas where we haven't pushed into like full singularity situation, right. such as the digitization yeah. of consciousness. Like I think the individuals who are in that heaven still have to have their body or at least part of it yep. uh, on file somewhere. Right. Yeah. Squeezed into continually smaller and smaller drawers. <laughs> this reminds me of, have you guys ever read any Charles Strauss? A lot of his stuff kind of treats uh, this singularity similarly. This is funny. Charles Strauss blurbed the heck out of this oh, book. Oh, did he? he okay. Apparently yeah. Charles Strauss loved Blindside. Yeah, so that, that's why it, it reminded me. Also, is Peter Watts a pseudonym? Or no, is that I his think real that's name? his real name. Because Peter Watts is the uh, the name of the character on Millennium that Terry O'Quinn played. Ha huh, ha. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Just a fun coincidence. I didn't I know Terry O'Quinn was in Millennium. Oh yeah, Terry O'Quinn was like a, a regular. He wasn't in every episode, but he was. He was like essentially like uh, Lance Hendrickson's like Millennium Group partner slash frenemy. Huh. Okay, well, y'all have to stop me, or we. Ha- I have to stop myself. We some somehow this has got to stop, or I'm just going to keep gushing about this book All for right, an hour. Robert, so. let's let's get your fiction pick in here. All right. Well, um, may, maybe I'm a bit set in my ways here, uh, but I decided to to not. Shock anyone and uh, feature an Ian M. Banks culture novel. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I, I think we're like Ian M. Banks's like best like commercial service. <laughs> Maybe but, so. Yeah. I, I mean, I, uh, it's not the only book I read, but it, I, right. have, I have to say, it but was, you uh, love these books. I do love them, and I kind of uh, I resist the urge to really just drive through them all and just read all of them because we're not going to get any more of them, right? Uh, since uh, Ian M. Banks uh, is no longer with us. But I, I generally read one a year, and it's always it's always a pleasure. 
Um, and then there are always so many stuff to blow your mind aligned themes that pop up in, in these books. How many are there total? I th- want to say there, um, it depends on how you count them because I think there are seven or eight that are considered culture novels, but some are, are sort of clear cult- culture novels that are, you know, definitely involving members of the culture. Yeah. And then others, it's a case where, okay, this seems to be a novel that's taking place in the same universe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that, 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 those varying levels of awareness actually come, come into play in this book. The, the book is, uh, is matter. So the book concerns the shell world of, uh, Sursaman, which is a titanic artificial planet that contains nested concentric, uh, spheres internally, uh, lit by tiny thermonuclear stars. Whoa. So uh, in the book, we learn that it was built by a mysterious, long-dead race known as the Vale, for reasons unknown. Uh, there, are, there are multiple shell worlds uh, spread throughout the galaxy in the, the culture universe, but it's thought that the, the structures were originally intended to be fluid-filled and utilized as a means of projecting some manner of, of um, shielding around the entire galaxy. Oh. Now, unknown if that shielding would have been to keep something out or to keep something in. Uh, you know, it's hard to question the ways of the ancients, right? But, uh, anyway, it was never completed. And in the ages that followed, you have various spacefaring races, uh, coming in, exploring it, taking control of it. And now various layers of this thing are home to uh, implanted ecosystems. And two of these contain humanoids, feudal pre-industrial humanoid races engaged in wars of conquest while foster uh, civilizations look on like different alien hmm. beings. Uh, one of them's they just called the Oct because they're kind of uh, cephalopodic. Wait, now if you said this, I missed it. Do the do the people inside the shell worlds know they're in a shell world, or do they just think they're in the world? That's one of the really interesting aspects of, of this book because it, the three main characters, uh, humanoid characters, are uh, the members of the the, the royal house of Sarl mm-hmm. in one of these internal levels. That's uh, again in this pre-industrial feudal age, but they're not they're not living in complete ignorance of the world beyond them. Like they they know that the oct are an alien species that looks after them. They know that they live in a shell world mm-hmm. and that there's a greater universe beyond. But at the same time, they they believe that uh, their god uh, lives in the center of the shell world. Oh, and wow. uh, and they're able to have like they're able to sort of think magically, to have sort of magical thinking about these greater powers while also believing that they are rooted in more of a logical universe. Hmm. So th- throughout the book, he does a great job of exploring this question, what would it be like to exist in a society like this, uh, to, to know uh, to know they're aliens, to know that there is a, there's advanced science that, that your people can't even, uh, you know, grasp, that you don't even have a, like a germ theory of, uh, of, of disease, mm-hmm. uh, but yet to know that there are spaceships that travel around inside your shell world. Um, and then how would you, and then how do you understand the, uh, the universe beyond your shell world? Because the problem is, like, their cosmology is built upon this, these layers within this sphere. And so it's even more complex for them to try and, and grasp this greater universe beyond. Now that makes me think about sort of the consequences of, like, what we see in Star Trek with the Prime Directive. You know, they mm-hmm. always say, like, don't interfere and try to help a less advanced species, uh, because you'd just be, messing up their way of life and their natural evolution through history. And I, I often look at that and say, eh, why not? Why don't we just come in and teach them about spaceships and stuff like that? But you can imagine the trouble that could be caused with this radical disconnect where you don't have 
the scientific foundations already existing and suddenly you're just aware of advanced technology. Yeah, and Banks explores some of this because you have these these various alien races that are watching these uh, feudal societies and essentially setting back and enjoying their wars of conquest. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're not supposed to get too involved. There are there are laws involved that are keeping them from, you know, showing up and handing over advanced technology. And, uh, and I don't want to spoil anything in the plot, but essentially, uh, it seems to be the case that someone has violated one of these, these laws. Uh, it's, it's, it's a book where the, the plot initially seems pretty, uh, simple because within the shell world, you have, uh, a, a just king who's, uh, who's killed uh, by an usurper. And then you have the three children of the king who have to deal with it. Uh, like one child witnesses the murder. He's not a child anymore. He's a grown up. Uh, he witnesses the murder and is on the run. And then the youngest son is there, uh, um, uh, you know, left as the heir. And then you have the daughter who has actually left uh, the shell world and now is a member of the culture. Oh. And of course the culture, uh, with a capital C is, uh, is the, the inter, uh, planetary, interstellar, uh, society at the, the core of most of these, uh, culture books. And they're what a, I guess you would say, uh, um, an, an anarchist, uh, utopian society post, uh, scarcity. And, controlled by AI. Yeah. And one of the details that comes up in this book is that, so the AIs are each a ship. So these mm-hmm. ships run the culture essentially and they have, they converse with one another, make decisions. But, uh, each one's operating system is built from the ground up. Like it evolves from the ground up that protects them from being like rapidly infected by anything. Hmm. I think you just answered one of my questions about this, but it sounds like you're reading this book through the perspective of multiple cultures, right? It's not like there's one character that we follow that's only in the culture and not in the show world. You're getting perspectives from all of them. Well, there are three, the three main characters all are rooted in, uh, in the, the, the house of sorrow. Okay. But you do in, encounter various other, uh, individuals who are like, there's a, there's a character that was maybe once a humanoid and now is a, uh, essentially this metallic bush kind of a creature, like very transhuman. <laughs> okay. Um, very David Lynch. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, the great things about Banks' sci-fi is that he, he deals with some very serious uh, science fiction topics, you know, some mm-hmm. very lofty ideas. There's a whole, there's a whole bit in this and really the, um, the title itself refers to uh, a section in it where they're tr- they're talking about simulations and the theory that that we live within a simulation that this mm-hmm. is all a computer simulation and so they they talk about that like whether how do we know that we are matter how do we know that we are the we are the, like the prime reality and not some created reality for another's amusement uh, and, and and then they read Descartes together. <laughs> well, and, and then there's going to be some sort of uh, absurd punchline here and there. I mean, it's right. not. I don't want to paint it like it's Discworld or anything, right? Yeah. But yeah. there is a there is a good-hearted silliness in a lot of of uh, the culture series that I think uh, you know propels one on. There's an optimism there too. So, what are the chances that uh, Hollywood is eyeing this as like a big like a uh, uh, franchise property? It sounds ripe. For turning it into some kind of a media property since it's got all these different books and Enam Banks is so beloved as an author. I don't know. I, I have not heard any concrete plans to adapt any of the books, but yeah. there are some, there are some lovely smaller scale books that, uh, in the series that I think would work wonders, such as, uh, uh, The Player of Games, which I, I think I've talked about on this podcast in the past before, but it's about a, a culture operative who, 
uh, has to infiltrate and, uh, and affect an alien society whose whole society is built a, a, around a single super complex board game, essentially. Wow. So they have to bring him in, a master of games. Jonathan Strickland. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe Jonathan will play uh, will play him in the movie. So anyway, I, I highly recommend Matter. I, I'm, I'm torn if it's a, an ideal starting point for the culture series, but okay. that's one of the ultimate beautiful things about it is that this is not a, like an eight – seven or eight volume saga yeah. like each one can stand on its own and each one may refer to the overall timeline um you know a little bit or a lot depending on what the plot is and each one i'm assuming does like a pretty good job of immersing you in this world and like kind of getting you settled into it before it proceeds with its narrative yeah 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 they, they, they do uh this one this one is i think does an especially good job because you have characters that are uh, at home in certain a certain layer within a certain world within this larger universe, and you're able to sort of work out from there. Cool. Yeah, it's oh, my reading list grows by the day. I, I I really don't think that I'm going to ever be able to read everything that's been recommended to me. But uh, Ian Banks, I have the Wasp Factory sitting in my pile next to the bed. Yeah. And oh, that's where I've got I that too. Start. Yeah. Um, but that's not one of his sci-fi novels. No, that was his first. He had written some sci-fi novels, and he he had difficulty finding publishers. And yeah. so he said, well, heck, I'm going to write a kind of a literary horror tale. So he wrote The Wasp Factory, and it was a tremendous hit. And it is a it's a tremendous um, kind of slightly surreal horror read. One Very of my, disturbing. Uh, one of the things that makes me want to read The Wasp Factory is that it's got a pull quote on the outside of the book where you normally have stuff like, you know, a tour de force. And the pull quote says something like, utter trash, absolutely <laughs> depraved. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of depraved. Once I, I finish that, then I'm going to – then I'll probably add a culture book to that stack and then it will be five years after that that I get to that. I'm still trying to f- finish that Nift the Lean book that you let oh, me borrow yeah. a year ago. Well, that's a good one. To which see. I have also recommended uh, all over the place, Michael Shea. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of literary horror, speaking of Michael Shea, uh, what's your fiction selection? Yeah. So I don't have one fiction selection. I have many. I have undergone a project for the summer. My wife for my birthday, because I asked her to do this, got me subscriptions to a bunch of genre magazines that have short fiction in them. So I was like, you know what? I, I really I know about all this stuff that's going on. I write fiction. I should try to immerse myself in what people are currently publishing. So here, I'll hand you guys the two physical copies that I brought in. You can take a peek while I'm going through these. But I have been reading uh, and have subscriptions now to The Dark, Nightmare Magazine, Apex Magazine, The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Clark's World, Lightspeed, Cemetery Dance, Black Static, and The Lovecraft E-Zine. Uh, and if that sounds like a lot, it is. I had no idea how much I was getting into and how much I was going to try to keep up with. But yeah, the basic idea was that I subscribed to these so I could be more aware of what is publishing within this ecosystem, who are the new voices and genres like horror and fantasy and sci-fi and what are their concerns. I felt like I had a responsibility as a writer to, to keep up with what my peers were doing, but also to support their work financially. Uh, so the, the copies I just gave you, I, I have physical subscriptions to Cemetery Dance and Black Static. Everything else is digital. So, uh, you know, it actually only ends up being like something like $20 a month for all of those subscriptions, which is kind of nice. And, uh, there aren't as many avenues, I think, for beginning writers to break in anymore. Robert and I were talking about this earlier this morning. 
and to get paid on top of that, right? Yeah. Uh, as there used to be. So I decided I'm going to try to support these and do my best to keep up. Although, wow, I'm, I'm already way behind. It is a ton to keep up with. Uh, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to read all of it. I've already got a stack. I've only had it for three months. I've already got a stack of 20 plus issues to catch up on. Wow. But I've been trying to read like one short story a day. And then I, again, have a little field notes notebook that I, uh, track the stories in and, you know, track which ones I like the most, uh, so I can keep an eye out for those authors in the future. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a, I have a lot of thoughts about, uh, the, uh, the the independent publishing industry and 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 uh, the various horror publications that still survive to this day mm-hmm. and some of the and some of the new ones that have come out. I mean, I've 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 uh, written fiction uh, on and off for a while, so I'm, I'm familiar with with these. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, certainly, there's some legendary titles. I mean, Cemetery Dance has been around for uh, quite a while. I yeah, mean, I think that's. I remember when I was first uh, discovering like Joe Lansdale and Poppy Z. Bright. I remember. Uh, having their short story collections, and I was always curious, like, where did these? I, anytime I look at a short story collection, I want to see where things published originally, just yeah. out of curiosity. And Cemetery Dance was always on the list. That was how I picked this group. I, I basically have been reading a lot of anthologies in the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Usually, it's like the best horror of the year, the best dark fiction of the year, or whatever. And so I would go through those as bibliographies, essentially, and say, like, all right, where was all this stuff published originally? Cool, I'll go subscribe to that stuff now. Um, and surprisingly, yeah, it's. Not not all that expensive. They're about like two or three dollars an issue if you get them digitally. They get auto delivered to my Kindle. I don't even have to download them. Like all of a sudden, it's oh, cool. like at the on the first day of a month, there's like you know ten new magazines sitting on my Kindle. Um, there's some weird formatting issues though. The dark in particular, like for some reason, isn't Kindle ready, so it won't show up on my Kindle. But I can read it on like the Amazon app on like a phone or a tablet or something like that. So huh. sometimes I gotta switch devices or whatever, but it's fine. A first world problem. <laughs> uh, the the cool thing about Clark's World that I'd like to point out is that it also republishes classic works by you know really well known established sci fi fantasy authors. Uh, so like for instance, James Tiptree Jr. There was a story by him, her in, uh, in one of the issues that I was reading. So I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with James Tiptree Jr., but it's a pseudonym for Alice Bradley Sheldon. Uh, and she wrote sci-fi from the sixties to the eighties, but she took on a male pseudonym persona to mm-hmm. make it easier to get published. She really wrote some amazing stuff. Uh, one of the greats really, and she's got this huge body of work to explore. So it was cool that it just like kind of popped up there in Clark's world. Uh, there's also nonfiction in these. So there's a lot of stuff that looks at the industry as a whole, what's going on with publishing, uh, what kind of awards are coming out, you know, uh, Bram Stoker, Shirley Jackson, actually, as we're recording this, the Shirley Jackson awards were just awarded, uh, like two, two or three days ago, I think, uh, for 2016's nominees. And uh, they talk about genre films related, literary criticism. It's really interesting. Uh, so my favorite so far, I've been reading these for three months now trying to keep up. There's three stories that I want to call out in particular. One is Kiss the Mouthless Girl by Giovanni DeFio. And that was in Nightmare of May of this year. You were telling me about this one. Yeah, yeah. This one really stuck out to me. And then there was The Witch's Hour, or just Witch's Hour, by Shannon Connor Winward, which was in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Again, May, the May issue. And The Lark Ascending, which is a story by Samantha Henderson that was in The Dark, again published in May. Uh, 
magazine of fantasy and science fiction, did you know, like, that's where all the Dark Tower stuff was published originally. Like, The Gunslinger huh. originally came out as five short stories in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction over the course of the late 70s huh. going into the 80s. Yeah, so uh, it, that magazine, I mean, it's been around since the 40s. It has, like, this amazing track record of of talent that it's fostered. So Stephen King eventually worked up to that. Uh, after all the all the like, skin magazines, yeah, Cavalier, <laughs> yeah. Stephen King is the opposite. Like if you go and you you look at like Night Shift and Skeleton Crew, and you're like, where was this originally published? And it's all like Cavalier <laughs> and like Penthouse and stuff like that. Yeah, that yeah. was back in the day where you could make money writing short fiction and just selling them to skin mags. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, a, a publication that I'll throw in there as being a, a pretty good one. If you're into, if you're into fantasy, particularly dark fantasy, uh, Grim Dark Magazine is. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that was also on my list. I ended up not going with it uh, because that's like a very specific mm-hmm. genre, right? Grim Dark is a its own like subgenre, is it, my understanding. It kind of depends who you're talking to. Yeah. Um, Do people not consider George R. R. Martin an example of Grim Dark, like yeah, Game of Thrones stuff? I would, they yeah, do, sure. They, but basically, their whole lengthy like Facebook arguments like is this author grimdark nope not grimdark enough for me <laughs> right yeah <laughs> so it gets a bit as with any genre classification and subgenre classification it can get a bit silly so what is it it's it's fantasy where characters swear and they're mean and immoral well it's like it, uh, I think graphically violent right is, is part of it though this is the whole oh, <laughs> these okay. are all discussion okay. points in the argument but yeah. Because I remember, like, I wrote a short story. Uh, bo- both of you guys have read this short story I wrote last year. And uh, I sent it around to a couple of friends. And our buddy Michael Weehunt, who's mm-hmm. an established writer, who's published in some of these magazines, was like, eh, it's, a, it's a little bit grimdark. I don't know if you're going to be able to get it published in some of these. And I was like, I, I don't even know what that is. And then that's how I learned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess grimdark is just kind of like, you know, a lot of it's nihilistic. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like me. Uh, Grimdark Magazine in particular, uh, one of the reasons I started picking it up is because R. Scott Baker has had a couple of short stories set in his uh, his universe uh, in that those books. So, uh, we should throw that up. out for people who haven't listened to the R. Scott Baker episode. So uh, that universe is the – The second apocalypse saga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And these are dark fantasy books that he has, what, like at least like eight of or something like that. Yeah, it's right? a dark dark philosophically charged uh fantasy epic. Yeah. I guess yeah, yeah, you'd yeah. say. Again, another thing that's in my stack. I have the first book in that series, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Also recommended to me by a friend of the show, E.C. Steiner. Yeah. A lot of people uh, whose opinions I respect have l- love that stuff. So that's my fiction for the summer. Holy cow. Uh, other than comics, of course. But yeah, I've I've been diving into the deep end. I also... Just finished rereading Stephen King's It for the summer, but oh. that is not on my recommendation list. I love that book, but I don't know that I necessarily think it's for everybody to revisit. It's a lot of book, too. To it's huge. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll jump into some non-fictional selections. Uh, and uh, then after that, we'll probably take another commercial break. And uh, then we will discuss a few comics and one final fiction selection from Joe. All right. We're back. Okay, so nonfiction. If I know you guys, there's some pretty dense stuff because you, especially Joe, Joe loves some like really dense scientific nonfiction material, but also accessible. Uh, I, I don't know what you mean by dense. I mean, I wouldn't like. I'm I'm not recommending like textbooks or anything. What do you got? But, 
Okay, it's uh, it's a textbook now. <laughs> my pick this year is uh, the Fundamentals of Physics, Volume Two. No, it's, <laughs> it's uh, a book by Ed Yong. Oh, of course, yeah, one of, one of my favorite science writers yeah. and has yeah, been yeah. for years. Uh, the, the book is his 2016 book from HarperCollins called "I Contain Multitudes: The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life." Now, Ed Yong is, as you've mentioned before on the show, somebody if you're into our podcast, worth following on Twitter because he has some really interesting insights. Oh, oh yeah. Right. yeah, he I mean he's great on Twitter. Uh, just if you ever see an article by him, he writes for different publications. He writes for the Atlantic, for yeah. National Geographic sometimes, but anytime you see an article by him, it's worth checking out. It's usually going to be about some really interesting feature of biology that you've never mm-hmm. been aware of before and he he he's one of the real great biology writers out there right now. He's oh, one yeah. of those dudes that like every time we're researching, like I'd say like once a month when we're researching, like something will just ping on the radar and it'll be an Ed Young. Oh, case. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh so I contain multitudes is about microbial life and it's one of the best science books I've read in a long time. I'm I'm actually hoping we can talk to Ed Young on the show sometime. That'd be really great. Uh, and I've I've emailed with him once, but I, I want to get back in touch with him. Hopefully we can bring him on. We'll see. Uh, but like I said, he's been one of my favorite science writers for years, and I think this book is just gold. It, it hits the sweet spot of combining getting it right with making it fascinating, which sometimes you, you feel like science writers tend to spill more in, over onto one side of that right. than the other. He can do both. He's really good at getting the point across and being accessible. Yeah. yeah. Um, so based on the title, you might guess that I Contain Multitudes because You Contain Them is about the microbiota within your body. And that is a major part of the book, but it's only one part of the story. One of the main themes that I took away from the book is that it's about the many ways in which this is not a world of plants and animals with some microbes scattered around it. This is a world of microbes, and if you were just to communicate from a purely biological perspective with an alien species, what is Earth life like? People would usually say, well, it's, you know, it's like humans, they've got a head with eyes. and No, you'd be talking about the microbes because that is what the majority of Earth life is. We didn't put them on the golden plates at all. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we should have. Yeah. That is is what's representative of Earth life. And so this is a micro. They don't have planet. anything about bacteria. Surely they must. That's an interesting question we should look at in the future. Well, they did have uh, carvings of naked humans, and those naked yeah. humans are crawling with bacteria they and other microbes. Naked bacteria. Mm. It depends what the the alien encountering it knows about right life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we assume that the aliens that are encountering it are also going to be anthropomorphic and subsequently have eyes and look at these etchings on a gold plate. Anyway, well, might feel them, or yeah, yeah you know, it's. But if they evolved, I wouldn't harsh on Voyager too bad. But if they evolved from microbial life, and I guess we're to assume they did, that's right. our only model, then they would surely look at a human being on a plate and say, oh, this is what evolved from microbial life on their world. Right. right. So, okay, back to your Ed Young book. Yeah, and so, well, th- that is one thing we can sort of expect. That Ed Young doesn't talk about this much, but it's like if we encounter life somewhere else in the universe – one thing we can almost certainly be sure of is that it evolved from single-celled organisms. And in what direction it evolved, you know, that's hard to guess. It might, might go in all kinds of ways. But single-celled organisms are going to be the rule for life in the galaxy. And they're definitely the rule for life on Earth. Microbes are, are not just a thing that we interact with on Earth. But uh, one of the great things about his book is it shows all the 
hundreds of ways that microbes are so integrally a part of our existence, it almost doesn't even make sense to think of ourselves as humans with microbes living in and on us. We need them for our lives. We've co-evolved with them. The more we learn, the more it becomes clear they are us. Microbes are part of what we are, and without them, we wouldn't be what we are. So I'm going to house stuff works eyes this conversation for a second. Uh, Brain Stuff, our, one of our other shows here that I am the narrator on, uh, we have the classic episode, which is our version of this, Why Are You Farting? Which is, that, <laughs> that's basically like our version of that. It's like, uh, here's about all these microbes that are inside your body, mm-hmm. but we'll tie it into flatulence. <laughs> Anyway, that book is definitely worth checking out, uh, and maybe in the future we'll get to talk to Ed on the show sometime. Yeah, that'd be cool. Ed, if you're listening, give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I I have two selections I'm going to run through here. And okay. There, there's a reason because you'll need the second one after the first one. Uh, the first book is uh, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die by Garrett M. Graff. Uh, this is one of the more terrifying things you, you can read this year. Uh, and the horror is twofold. So on one level, you can revel in the post-apocalypse that might have been. A United States ravaged by nuclear war in which a replacement U.S. government is stitched together from surviving political and corporate leaders. Uh, post office employees travel the country to count the dead. Uh, to <laughs> sort of chronicle the mega deaths, I guess. And uh, everyone else who crawled out of a bunker gets to spend those hoarded $2 bills uh, <laughs> and eat Nabisco survival biscuits. Nice. Okay. So, you know, it's kind of – it has something for Fallout fans. Yeah. You know? Yeah. On the other hand, you get to learn all about uh, our, our nation's uh, past rehearsals for nuclear war, the nature of the so-called nuclear football, and just how much unchecked power a U.S. president has to plunge the world into nuclear annihilation. Oh, boy. So it, it, will, <laughs> it will absolutely horrify so you. So this is definitely beach reading. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get to – This is a uh, – what is it? A boy and his dog? Yeah, I mean, yeah. in a way, if you're reading uh, A Boy and His Dog or The Road or uh, The Stand or just about anything else, you can you could whip this out and sort of fact check everything. A little yeah. Bit. So in this book, you get to learn about uh, the mobile aerial command centers for the U.S. government uh, and the buried bunker, essentially cities created to shelter the chosen few while, you know, the rest of everybody else dies. <laughs> Yeah, you get to uh, consider uh, all these different accounts of how these plans played into U.S. history, such as uh, there's this account of Defense Secretary James Schlesinger, and he ordered the Pentagon. He had to order the Pentagon not to uh, to disregard a presidential launch order of nuclear weapons because he was afraid that Richard Nixon, who at the time was this is like the the very end of his presidency, yeah. he's drinking heavily, you know, just thumbing through his enemies. This is what everybody was worried about. Yeah. He would like in a rage just fire some nukes on his way out the door. Yeah, and I believe he it's not just like I wonder if he'll do this. Like I think Nixon had had mentioned the possibility. Well oh, Nixon boy. Nixon had been practicing what was known then as the madman theory of of international relations where he would he would get his subordinates to try to convince the Soviet Union that he was unhinged and likely to launch a nuclear strike in order to get more leveraging power in negotiations with them because he was – the idea was if the Soviets think that Nixon might – is so crazy he really might start a war, then we can get more out of them when we're having discussions. Uh, OK. Yeah. OK. So it's it's that is level that of anxiety rising. Is that practiced by any other – 
uh, world leaders right now. <laughs> uh, well, I, I will just say that with with everything that continues to uh, uh, fill our news feeds, yeah. this this book is uh, illuminating relevant. and relevant, and uh, and also uh, you know anxiety uh, uh, aggravating as well. All right, and this is why you have a second book. That is why I have the second book. The second book, listeners of the show may remember from uh, Joe and I's cocktail episode, because after Raven Rock, you're going to need a drink. Uh, the book is The Drunken Botanist, The Plants That Create the World's Great Drinks by Amy Stewart. This is just, this is a lovely volume to keep around. This is one that I, I pull off the bookshelf, uh, fairly frequently. Yeah, Robert, you let me borrow this when we were preparing for our mixology episode and I, I flipped through it. I, I really enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's got just cool little facts and, uh, stuff behind all these cocktails you might enjoy and the liquors that go into them. And it's, uh, it's a cabinet of curiosities for the mouth and the stomach. Yeah. Essentially, if you, if you drink and you uh, are, if you're a beer drinker, a wine drinker, or certainly if you're a cocktail drinker, you can look up the different beers, wines, uh, various liqueurs and see what is the botanical origin. And then what is that plant? Where does it come from? How did it come to be? How did humans uh, cultivate it or interact with it? Uh, so it, it turns every, it turns every cocktail you might have, uh, into, uh, into a potential, uh, you know, uh, botany lesson. Wow. Between this and uh, our colleagues Annie and Lauren over on Food Stuff, I feel like uh, like we need to just have like a, a full bar set up here at How Stuff Works. Like, well, we I feel a, like, like I think it, we have a cabinet full of liquor bottles, don't we? we? Yeah, Somewhere. we do. But like I look at their feed and like half the episodes that they do are about like some kind of alcohol. So it's clearly like really interesting scientifically. Well, it's, it's kind of an imbalance, right? I mean, they get the free alcohol and we get yeah. free copies of Raven Rock. This is um, true. So, yeah. There you go. Uh, review copies, I should say. They're not free. So yeah, The Drunken Botanist. Uh, excellent volume. Looks good on a shelf. And it has cocktail recipes within it. So you, you can bust it out to, to, to see what you're going to, you know, uh, concoct for the evening. So at the beginning of this episode, I, I said that I would inevitably uh, bring up other comic books. Raven Rock reminds me of this great series uh, that I think is wrapping up right now called Letter 44. Have I talked to you guys about this before? I don't think so. Uh, the premise is that uh, the United States has detected a spaceship just in within the solar system and they have already sent uh, a ship full of scientists to go investigate what it is and the 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 beginning of the story is a new president is elected there's a letter on his desk in the oval office and he opens it and it's essentially a letter describing to him like here's all this stuff that's going on congratulations you just inherited this huge problem and the story goes on from there the Raven Rock thing reminds me because a huge part of it is them preparing for what they assume is going to be some kind of doomsday scenario hmm. if the aliens are coming to Earth. Uh, I highly recommend this story. It's like the West Wing meets, uh, you know, uh, some like outlandish hard sci-fi. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's really cool. And that leads me to uh, a completely unrelated nonfiction recommendation that I have. So uh, I recommend, and this is something that I am about halfway through right now myself, Corey Doctorow's book, Information Doesn't Want to be Free, Laws for the Internet Age. This is something I stumbled across when I went to South by Southwest earlier this year. Mm -hmm. They have they do this little thing where they have like a South by Southwest bookstore that they set up in the convention center. And it's like all books that have debuted at South by Southwest where the, the authors have given talks related to them. So I found this there. Um, 
short, these are all short essays by Cory Doctorow, like real short about copyright and navigating around it to be a successful creator of really anything in the digital age. Uh, it's about how old models have failed and are changing and what is actually coming down the road. And this is a book that's published by McSweeney's. You guys are familiar with McSweeney's. Right. So the physical copies got this really cool design to it. I, I'm reading it uh, digitally, but it's got a, it's got a beautiful cover. Um, Cory Doctorow, if people aren't familiar, is a blogger and fiction writer. He's the guy who runs Boing Boing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very active in copyright activism and in creative commons. His writings, they're almost all available as free PDFs from his own site using Creative Commons licenses. So he's basically made some, some interesting arguments. I don't know that I agree with all of them and I don't, I don't want to go through all of them here, but that distributing his content as such, making them free to everybody actually helps his sales in other distribution models, whether that's print or digitally. So even though you can download a PDF of like this book, he, he argues, well, that acts as like fodder to get people to go and buy it, whether it's in print or digitally it's kind of an interesting model hmm. that's interesting that that kind of perhaps ties in with the the comic book i'm going to mention later oh cool oh yeah. right yeah 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 that's a that that is a good launching point um so there's some really good advice in this book for creative people who are trying to make a go at making a living off of what they do whether you're, you're a musician you're a writer you're a podcaster whatever you're making short films and you're putting them on youtube this gives you advice on questions like when should you quit your job does copyright protection work in your favor it tells you how to build an audience and uh dr o makes this point that most creative people when they're starting out they don't want to worry about this stuff right they just want to make things they just want to get it out there in the world uh but rather than ignoring it he recommends use this book based on the lessons that he's learned as a starting point so that you can learn the difference between these are the various sectors that he describes, uh, creators, investors, audience, and intermediaries. Uh, and as well, this also describes how the industry is currently organized and where it's going, which is something, I mean, I know it's of interest to us because we work within this industry, but I'm sure that there are many of our listeners out there that make stuff, whether they're, they're writing articles or they're doing their own podcasts or they're making short films or they're recording music. I, I think this would be of interest to most people who are trying Trying to sort of get their creative projects out there into the world. Cool. Yeah. So if you're out there and you're listening to us and say, hey, when can I start a podcast and quit my job? Yeah. Uh, read this before you make any rationalizations. Oh, decisions. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly, there's a there's a chapter title that's like, when should I quit my job? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, we can look at uh, uh, our, our final selections. I know a couple of comics from you guys and another fiction book I wanted to mention. All right, we're back. So, Joe, what do you have? You have one, you have one more uh, fictional selection here before Christian and I share a couple of comics. Yeah, and now this one is a classic in science fiction. I'm sure a lot of you have probably already read it, and I just wanted to mention it because it was new to me this year, and it's every bit as great as people say it is. It's deserving of the praise, and this would be the 1969 sci-fi classic The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. Ah, yeah. My wife has been reading a lot of Le Guin lately. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
Have, have you guys read this book? I right? have not read it. I, I have not. Oh, I've had a copy wow. on the shelf for ages. It's yeah. been uh, on I just, the list. Okay, so I'd been meaning to read this book for years. I think or, there's a big resurgence with her stuff going on right yeah, now. Yeah, I just noticed that this is funny. So I started reading this book, and I was talking to my wife, Rachel, who doesn't usually read a whole lot of sci-fi. Uh, and I found out at the same time, completely unknown to me, she had been reading a different Le Guin book. I, I don't know where all this uh, sudden interest came from. I guess it just emerged from the ether. Uh, but- hold on. Your wife and my wife are in the same reading group. And ah. I think they might have had a Le Guin book assigned for that. That might be it. But right. I'm, maybe, Could be. maybe I'm wrong. Well, anyway, this book is just Excellent. Like, if you've never read it before, you should go back. It was published in 1969, but it's fresh. It feels like it could have been published this year. Hmm. Uh, it, it just jumps off the page. It's so good. All right. Well, well give us the, the sell. Beyond everyone knowing that this is a book we should have read, why should we read it? <laughs> well, it's, it's a very different kind of alien contact story. Unlike Peter Watt's book that I recommended earlier, Blindsight, which is amazing on its own. In, in that book, the alien contact is a confusing and dangerous meeting of utterly unfamiliar minds. This is more of an alien anthropology story. So it's set within Le Guin's Hainish cycle, which is this larger uh, group of books that uh, I haven't read any of the other ones in this cycle. So you don't need to know anything about the cycle going in. It's all explained within the story. You can just jump right in to this novel. But anyway, in this story, there are many solar systems throughout the galaxy with similar related humanoid life forms that have been seeded by one original culture, and the humanoid worlds gradually become absorbed into this one sort of galactic treaty organization called the Ecumen. And this is, I guess, sort of similar to the culture, actually, yeah. in, in Ian and Banks. And in this novel, the Ecumen sends a single lone representative named Ginley I to this cold, frozen planet called Gethin. And it's his job to convince the planet's major governments to sign treaties and join the Ecumen. But it's kind of difficult because they're not a spacefaring planet. They have no spaceships. Uh, they don't have much technology. They're sort of like, you know, a mid-20th century industrial technology but they, they they have no goal of going into space. And so when he shows up, their reaction is not very interested, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> but anyway, th- that sort of gets into the cultural differences between like Earth culture and what's there on this planet. So that that's the opening setup. But most of the joy of this novel is just in the interactions of alien cultures learning from each other and learning about each other. And one of the great themes in this book, and it's sort of there in the title, is that uh, light is the left hand of darkness. It's that we learn to understand things through difference and distinction. Like there are oftentimes things we don't recognize in ourselves until we meet somebody very different from us. And we, we learn to contrast that person with us to see something we never knew was there before. Uh, so the novel's this kind of anthropology of the inhabitants of Gethin, but in doing that, it's also a reverse anthropology of human earth culture. And it's it's just full of, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much about it because most of the pleasure in it is just discovering how the world works and how different it is from us and and how the differences can be can seem so different and be the same or can show us something about ourselves. It's just a great, great sci-fi book. Cool. Yeah, well, it sounds like I need to uh, actually pull it off the shelf and, and jump in, actually make it happen this year with The Left Hand of Darkness. Not to be confused with The Right Hand of Doom. Right. What is that? It's a Hellboy graphic novel. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he has the big 
the big uh, stone hand. Oh, right, right, right. The big punchy hand. Yeah, big punchy well, no. hand. Very different than the Hellboy world, but, uh, but there's all kinds of, I mean, it's serious, but it's also got some humor in it. It's, um, I, I couldn't recommend it enough, and I think both you guys would love it. Cool. I, I, the, the idea that there's some humor in it, I think, is a good selling point because she has a very serious sounding name. I know that sounds uh-huh. ridiculous, <laughs> but. <laughs> well, it's not a silly novel. I mean, right. it's not Star Trekky. Like, it, it, it's a, it's got a very serious story and a lot of serious stuff happens in it, but there, there's also some joy and some humor in it to be had in the relations between the characters. Yeah, I, th- I think that's one of the, that is one of the reasons I keep coming back to Banks is that there is a joy there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do enjoy some joyless fiction. Here yeah. And there. I know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's like I, you want something that uh, that wants to wake up in the morning sometimes. All right, well, uh, shall I cover my comic here? Yeah, let's, right, let's talk it. comics. Okay, so I I always have to, to preface by saying I'm not a huge comics guy. I probably read like three comics a year, and uh, and and I'm you know a bit a bit choosy and reluctant, uh, but I'll inevitably pick up a, a couple of things. So this year I, I read uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Showman Killer, which I enjoyed. On uh, your suggestion, uh, Christian, I read uh, uh, James Stokoe's Orkstein. Oh, God. Which Orkstein is, also is wonderful. so good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually reading uh, one of James Stokoe's earlier works right now, not on my recommendation list, but he did this book called Wonton Soup that's mm-hmm. all about like space truckers, essentially, <laughs> uh, who in the main space trucker is constantly in search for the best wonton soup in the galaxy. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds fun, too. Yeah. Stokoe's great. But the the book that I'm going to highlight here is uh, is a wonderful little comic, uh, and it's actually a web comic. But yeah. there's uh, the the first uh, what 92 pages of it are available in physical form, and it's called "Kill Six Billion Demons" by Tom Parkinson Morgan. And this one was actually recommended recommended to me by J M uh, Draganis who uh, is another t- talented comic artist and a friend of yours. Yeah, well, I met him because he's a listener to our show. Ah. Uh, yeah, he uh, wrote in to me. I think he heard me talking about going to a comic book convention at some point, And we, sometime last year, we met up at a comic book convention and became friends and we're comics buddies now. Yeah, and and I introduced you to him when we did our live show at C2E2 earlier this year. Yeah, and that's where we were chatting and he said, oh, you, know, you should check out Six Billion D. And so yeah. I, I looked it up, I did, and, and uh, by, yeah. By... While we're at it, his pen name for his comics is J.M., but his name's Joe. Uh, Joe uh, does a book called The Sires of Time, which is worth checking out, too. Oh, yeah. He has this kind of this wonderful woodcut yeah. style that uh, that's beautiful. You should follow him on social media and wa- like watching him. The time he puts into like every single page is a, it's stunning. Anyways, kill sixteen billion demons. Uh, sounds right up my alley. Yeah, and uh, it's 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 a web comic, uh, which is kind of a, a new thing to me. I'm not really that uh, up on web comics and how they work, but you can you can go to kill six billion demons dot com. That's uh, no numbers in there. Must be tough to get that domain name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you can read it all there, and it's uh, like people. It's like a I guess kind of a patron system where people uh, support that way. Yeah. and or buy the the physical book. But it's uh, it's essentially the story of a, a young woman who's sucked into an alien world of demons, angels, fallen gods. Uh, it showcases heavy inspiration from Eastern religion, so lots of like lots of iconography that feels reminiscent of Hinduism and various, okay. uh, and, as well as various Buddhist uh, uh, works of art. And there's also uh, this might might just be me. I haven't seen 
you know, him point to this artist as an inspiration, but, uh, I get a strong sense of Wayne Barlow in a lot of the designs. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, Wayne Barlow, who, you know, created, really made a career out of drawing, uh, at times dinosaurs, some paleo art, but also aliens and demons. Yeah, yeah. So gorgeous stuff. Like if you just, if you're out there listening and you want to see what it looks like, like Google image search that or look for it on Pinterest. Yeah, yeah, Wayne, Wayne Barlow's incredible. Uh, so this, uh, this, this is just a, a really, really fun comic to pick up. Strong female protagonist, wonderful lore, and, uh, there are just so many, so many, uh, scenes you turn to are just gonna be like an, an epic landscape where there are all these different demonic or angelic creatures, uh, engaged in various activities around, like, strange locales. And you just kind of you just kind of lose yourself in the image. It's kind of like looking at a at a Bosch painting, you know. And you're just yeah. you're just picking out all the details and and figuring out the smaller stories that are occupying the corners. Yeah, I mean, I had never heard of this until you you brought it in today into the studio, and it, it completely missed my radar. But it looks gorgeous. All right. Well, uh, how about you, Christian? You uh, you are you unlike me are a big comics guy, so I know you've got right. something special for us. This is uh, my favorite comic that's come out in the last, I guess, like twelve months, maybe. Um, it, I think it was pu- being published in single issues last year, and the collected edition came out uh, early twenty seventeen, I believe. It's called House of Penance, and it's by Peter J. Tomasi, Ian Bertram, and Dave Stewart, and it's published by Dark Horse Comics. This is, uh, so the collection is a graphic novel horror story about the Winchester Mystery House and its construction. So, uh, we're probably all three of us fairly familiar with it, but if, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, it builds off of the myth that Sarah Winchester thought there was a blood curse on her home thanks to her husband's gun business. So, the idea here, and this is real, you can go visit this place if you've not heard of it before. Winchester Mystery House is a real mansion in San Jose, California. It was the residence of William Wirt Winchester's widow, Sarah. And it has a lack of a building plan that's turned it into this odd curiosity for tourists. Uh, it was constructed in 1884, and Sarah and other people have claimed that it was haunted by the ghosts of those who were killed with Winchester rifles. Oh, man. So she kept building it into this crazy labyrinth. Uh, there's doors and stairs that go to nowhere. Like our hotel in Chicago for C2E2. <laughs> stairs scattered. leading straight into a wall. I thought, I thought of the Winchester Mystery huh. House when we stayed there. Yeah. Uh, there's also, like, there's just windows inside that open up into other rooms, but they don't open outside. Like, I, yeah, I've not visited, but it's definitely on my bucket list. Uh, it's pretty interesting. So this book is all about that. It's about this, the construction of it. It's got this art that is just stunningly detailed. It's got this wonderful color palette. So it, if you don't recognize Dave Stewart's name, Dave Stewart is like the go-to colorist in the comics industry. Like he is the guy who's won like best colorist at all the awards ceremonies for like the last like 15 years or something like that. He's, he's amazing. Uh, and so he uses this really cool palette of reds that draws you into this myth. It's got some smart layout with really clever panel designs, but at the same time it keeps this story flowing. It's really haunting and unsettling too. Like Tomasi really takes the whole like Sarah Winchester myth and, and builds out with it, you know, beyond what we know about Sarah Winchester. But it's rare for a horror comic in that it's actually unsettling and fills me with dread when I'm reading it. Like most horror comics, 
I, I write horror comics, so I, I have this problem when I'm writing mine. It's very difficult in the medium of comics to build dread in the same way you can in prose or in film, for instance, where you've got like audio to work with, right? right. In comics, there's, there's different tricks and tools that you can play with, but it's not as easy. Uh, and this book, man, it really does a good job of it. I mean, it gets your, your, skin crawling by the end of it. Uh, it's definitely for any horror fans who found our episode on the causes of human violence interesting because mm. really the larger theme uh, surrounding the book, you know, outside of these like bizarre ghosts that may or may not be haunting Sarah Winchester as she's constructing this monstrous mansion. It's about human violence, you know, and, 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 uh, the legend goes that for all the construction workers that lived on site that were building the house, she wouldn't allow them to carry arms and they weren't allowed to, no violence was allowed on the property. If they ever got into a fight or anything, they were immediately fired. Um, it uses lettering in a really smart way too. So, we associate bang in comics with a gun shooting, right? But they use the lettering. So there's bangs and blams all throughout this book, but you, it's associated with the construction of this building and all these guys constantly hammering huh. and building these rooms and then tearing these rooms down and rebuilding them in a different configuration. But then gunshots get mixed in there too. And violence gets mixed in there. It's, I, I was really, really impressed with this book. So I highly recommend it. I, I want to say, uh, the original series was something like five or six issues long. So it's, it's a good one and done graphic novel that's just, uh, utterly creepy. Cool. And, uh, does it, does it have any overlap at all with, uh, the movie 13 Ghosts? <laughs> it does not. No, I wish it did. Uh, yeah, no, unfortunately, no. Because that may be my favorite specially built. Uh, I was going to say, house, we yeah. need to, uh, we need to find a way to incorporate 13 ghosts into one of our trailer talks. I can't even remember There's what two year 13 it came ghosts, out. right? I remember uh, the remake came out classic, in the late nineties. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about the remake. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. With Matthew Lillard, right? Oh, was he? Yeah, I yeah. think he was. Yeah. And, um, what, God, what was Tony Shalab? Yeah. Shalhoub, yeah. 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 The, oh, you know what? This was another one of those movies where, uh, two movies with the basic same premise came out at the same time. There was House on Haunted Hill, yes. and Thirteen Rush. and Thirteen Ghosts all came out like right around Both the same time. Both remakes, yeah, right, right, yeah. Did yeah. Thirteen Ghosts have F. Murray Abraham in it, or oh, am I it imagining might have, that? Yeah, he might have been. He might have been the grand yeah. designer. Okay. I think I recall from Roger Ebert's review of 13 Ghosts where he started by saying, this is certainly one of the loudest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I will give 13 Ghosts this. The designs of the ghosts in that movie mm-hmm. are awesome. Like the ghosts look really cool. The yeah, movie, the only thing I remember, yeah. I vaguely remember F. Murray Abraham, but he might not have even been in yeah. it. Uh, Don't you have to wear like special glasses or there's – yeah, oh, they construct like glass around the house so you can see the ghosts, but only through this particular kind of made glass. Yeah. Oh, what a – yeah. No, this is completely unrelated, okay. but definitely go see 13 ghosts. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, some fictional, non-fictional, and comic recommendations. Uh, from your hosts here for you to, uh, you know, consider for your summer reading. Yeah, definitely. If you listeners out there have something that you think we should read, which I'm sure you do after hearing us gab about what we've been reading for the last hour plus, let us know, right? I, you can write into us. We're all over social media. We're on Facebook. You can write us there. Twitter, 
Tumblr, and Instagram. I'm loving Instagram right now, guys. Instagram's Instagram's my new social media platform of choice. Oh, yeah. cool. You mean yeah. personally or for the brand? Both. Yeah. Awesome. It's the like the brand. The, the brand. Yeah. Uh, I, I just really like it. It's like, uh, um, it feels like the one safe space <laughs> in social media right now where people can't just be like utterly inhuman to each other. I definitely feel like, feel that way about, uh, my, my personal Instagram. Like yeah. I, I can just go there and it's mostly pictures of people's kids. So, right. You know? Yeah. 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 It's either like people sharing cool art or, you know, we, selfies aren't really my thing, but like doing selfies and feeling proud about themselves or taking pictures of their lives. Yeah. We should start uploading pictures of food. Isn't that how you get followers on Instagram is yeah. food? Yeah, I would assume so. Pretty yeah. much our Instagram feed is like our episodes or, or weird pictures Robert and I take throughout the course of our day. <laughs> oh, uh, I should also mention that on our Facebook group, we, uh, oh, on yeah. our Facebook page, we now have a group associated with that. So if you, if you're one of our Facebook followers and you, you you would you would like to interact with us more and comment on the on the various content we put out, uh, especially on the podcast episodes, but in a way that maybe is less lost. Uh, you know, it's not as lost as it would be on the main page. Mm -hmm. Then the group is a uh, is potentially a good place for that. We just rolled it out. It's we're still still building up, but we're just we're going to see what happens with it. It's very small right now. I mean, in comparison to our Facebook page, I think our Facebook page has a million plus followers. But like our discussion group right now is only like maybe 20 or 30 people. So, yeah, definitely hop in there. Uh, it's a great place. Like some of our, our listeners are already putting articles in there to get our attention and other listeners attention to be like, hey, did you hear about this? Check this out. Yeah. Like the tardigrade thing. Uh, I saw that tardigrade piece and then Peter shared it on our uh, discussion board and I immediately thought of Joe. I was like, Joe, tardigrades. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta so check this out. And it should, this is a, a water bears. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the Klein of Vossabaran. Uh, <laughs> but this is a good place uh, for if you've ever wanted to share something to our page. I don't think we have that functionality right now. You can share it to the group and uh, you'll be able to accomplish the same effect. Yeah, yeah, totally. Hey, and in the meantime, as always, you can go to stufftoblowyourmind.com if you want to see some blog posts. Uh, Robert, you done any good monster stuff on there lately? Oh, man, this summer's been too busy for my... I think I did one on Blade. Yeah, yeah I yeah, saw your Blade yeah. one. That was great. to a, a slime uh, mite, I think. <laughs> That's it. Seriously, best kept secret on the internet, Robert's monster science posts on our site are amazing. If you're not, like, subscribed to our RSS feed, go to Stuff to Blow Your Mind right now and just scroll through all the awesome stuff Robert's been putting up there for seven years now. Yeah, it'll be an easy trip. You will not be trying to be a slime mic crawling uphill, ice, ice skating uphill. <laughs> um, and also, as always, if you want to email us, get in touch with us directly, you can hit us up at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.